Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Of, of those people. 
Um, and there's a, there's a sense in which that the community itself is, is involved in, in, that, in that process. So um, it's very much about not only just research and collecting on a community, it's also collecting by that community. And my definition takes that a little bit further than the community archives uh, group who have a considered a more inclusive and a, and a broader, uh, an explicitly and, and uh, um, for a purpose, a, a broader definition. But mine gives slightly more emphasis to both the grassroots nature of the process of documenting, recording, and exploring community heritage, but also places this emphasis more firmly, more explicitly on the on the idea of community participation in this activity, and even more perhaps extending towards a, a control and ownership of, of, of that process. Whereas you can see in the in the, the, the first definition, community archive definition, certainly suggests that there is potential for collaboration uh, and uh, work with uh, others. So how many of these do we think that there, that there might be? How many activities? There are around 700 uh, groups re registered as community archives on the, on the community archives website. At any one time, that number is 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 is, is fluid. Um, the those the groups uh, appear and disappear quite quickly. Um, if they're if they're mainly digitally based, the links uh, no, no longer work after you know, six months or a year or five years. So. Being definite about, about the numbers is, is always difficult, but its estimates say that there might be somewhere around, around 3,000 plus separate grassroots organizations, uh, visible or non-visible, working in, in community heritage. So what types of communities do we find in this, in this work? I think the most starting point is to think about the diversity uh, and the uh, the breadth of, of, of community and what community means in this context. Uh, we're talking mostly about communities that are self-identified. They, they identify themselves, they construct themselves uh, as communities, and sometimes that um, can be more inclusive, and sometimes it can also be excluding of others. The community is defined both by who is involved and who isn't. Mostly we find community archives to be productive and progressive in those definitions, but not always. So in terms of the types of communities that, act, that are actively involved in this kind of uh, uh, work, the majority, I think, would, would certainly be, uh, would be local. So that they are, and often hyper-local, so very local, a street or a village. Um, they can be regional, they can be urban, they can be rural. It's hard to be precise about the numbers, but I would say maybe something like 70% of community archive activity is probably operating within uh, a local uh, um, framework um, and possibly kind of sort of a, a very local and kind of, sort of hyper-local. Um, and possibly though also, as I, I say at the bottom of this slide, um, uh, co combining other factors around occupational identity uh, with, with that, that local focus. The other major strand of, uh, of community-based uh, archives and independent-based archives, certainly the ones um, that I've been most associated with uh, in my uh, work and in my research, although I'm, I'm very interested now in, in local and thinking about uh, local archives and their, and their 
So community building around place. But the, 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 the other strand that's been most uh, significant for my, my work and my interest has been those ones that are uh, associated often with a, a social movement and around identity and identity construction. Um, so often, and often those identities, whose the expression of those, of, uh, of those uh, identities, both in contemporary and historical uh, contexts, are often uh, minoritized and marginalized. So here we're talking about community archives that address issues around class, around gender, uh, certainly around ethnicity, faith, disability, sexuality, and the combinations of, of above in certain cases. We also find, as I've also suggested, community archives around occupation. Um, one of the growing areas of community archives practice is, is leisure and fan-based uh, community archives, uh, particularly in online spaces. So sports, art, popular culture, uh, particularly music is, is, a, is a growing area where community archives, people are sharing their, their material, both their memories, but also their material culture and their archives around uh, music and popular culture. An area which I, I, I suppose is probably, we could define this in, in, in different ways, and this might be a context we could return to, but something that I've been researching and writing and working uh, with um, recently in the last couple of years is those community, mostly digital archives, uh, but sometimes also emerging out of, out of physical uh, work, um, which, in which they are uh, basically acting as um, uh, human rights-based uh, community archives, documenting um, conflict, documenting state-sponsored violence and human rights abuses. And they are often a collaborative activity between uh, lawyers, human rights activists, and archivists. Um, and finally, as I say, there's a, sometimes a combination of these different identities. Um, and the, uh, the pictures here are of a range of, of, of different ones. We've got a, a local archive, My Brighton at Hove. Uh, we've got a queer archive from Brighton, a feminist archive uh, at the bottom, uh, and next to it at the, at the bottom left as you're looking at uh, the Black Cultural Archive. These are all well-established uh, archives uh, operating both digitally and physically. Thinking about uh, the types of communities also takes us on to thinking about the types of form uh, that these archives take. Um, and I think it's the easiest to think about this in terms of um, a, a spectrum, um, a, a spectrum that goes from those organizations that are very independent, very autonomous, perhaps inspired by a, uh, an ideology that emphasizes empowerment and uh, self-sufficiency, um, perhaps has a, uh, a political uh, reason for feeling uh, the need to be independent of uh, state actors, including heritage, heritage bodies, through to, um, at the other end of the spectrum, those that are operating in a much more collaborative partnership uh, between uh, a community and a heritage body, a local government body, or a health or a housing partner. And in between there, we've got a kind of, sort of a spectrum in which people are at different stages of that, uh, of that life. Some very independent, in some cases hostile to the idea of, of, of the receipt of state funding, 
hostile to the idea of collaboration with uh, state actors, and at the other end, people who are absolutely very interested in uh, and, and are motivated by that kind of collaboration. And some of that we can see the explanation uh, for that is is linked to um, perhaps the extent to which uh, people are driven by. Uh, uh, ideology, they're driven by uh, political purpose, they're dri driven by a, uh, a sense of, uh, of, as you'll see in their motivations, as, as, as a sense of, uh, of seeking to make good, make rep uh, repairing uh, damage that has, been, that has been done by these, these state organizations. And in other cases, that, that's not a, uh, an issue. But we can, we can overemphasize that to an extent. There are quite a lot of local um, volunteer-run museums and archives, but also do things entirely on their own resources with no real connection with the heritage partners in, the, in their areas. And that's probably because they, they either are geographically removed from, from the, the nearest heritage partners, they don't feel that it's something that those heritage partners will be interested in, it's primarily an, active, an activity for their community and, and for them to do, and they don't, they don't feel that, that need to be uh, connected to But I do think we can also overemphasize uh, some of these things and then on, on two points. So we need to be careful not to overemphasize a binary between um, people, community, uh, amateurs, um, and professional classes, whether they're academics or, or uh, heritage professionals, because quite often we find that people who are working in these community archives often have those skills, have those backgrounds, are working uh, in, a, in, in, a, in a university uh, for their paid employment, but are also working in these, in these volunteer positions in archives. Or people who've retired from heritage positions are now working in community archives. So there's that aspect. But also these forms aren't fixed in time. So if a community archive is very independent at one point, that doesn't mean that it won't come to a position where it embraces partnership at a later point. So there can be movement and evolution over, over time. I think it's also worth noting that the collections that community archives have um, are also very varied and very um, distinctive if we're thinking about it in, in terms of uh, what we would expect to find in, in mainstream heritage bodies. So, should be clear, or I should be clear to say that, that what we're talking about here is both um, physical and digital collections. So some archives are particularly um, laterally have, have been created in, uh, only in the digital space uh, with digital collections. Um, older, older community archives have extensive physical collections and a lot are operating in a hybrid space with physical collections that they're sharing on, online. But the, the more significant point is the, is the breadth of, of the collections that they hold. So community archive and the terminology of both community and archive is, you know, is contested um, and can be, we can have a conversation and probably will have a conversation about kind of the appropriateness of, of these terms, but these are the terms that, that are, are popularized and used. But their collections don't fit into the kind of narrow professional distinctions that, that we would have. I'm not suggesting that every community archive necessarily has all these things, documents, photographs, books, objects, ephemera, clothes, film, video, oral history. But 
a lot of them, a lot of them do. What they don't have is just traditional, classical, what we consider documentary records. They have a lot of other materials, and the importance is, is to um, is to reflect them is that they have the materials that they they can best collect to tell the history of their community. So they're not concerned with well, how we would uh, or or professional heritage organisations might think. Well, where, where's the most appropriate place for that? How would how would we look after that in an appropriate uh, setting? And I think this is particularly the case. You can, I think there are some commonalities. A lot of community archives rely on oral history. A lot of community archives make great use of photographs, particularly for digitising and sharing. But a lot of community archives also collect what we might perceive as being ephemeral or, or describe as ephemera um, in, uh, in terms of museum and archival thinking. So material that we wouldn't necessarily normally collect or quite or see it coming into our collection. So leaflets, posters, flyers, handbills, tickets, that, that kind of material. The material that, that is, in many ways, is the kind of sort of flotsam and jetsam of everyday life. And I think this quote here, which relates to the, the foundation collections of the Black Cultural Archives in London, kind of sums up that the importance of, of that kind of material in the, when there is an absence of other material. So when a community's life hasn't been documented in, in that way, uh, in traditional ways with, with a kind of range of written material or that material has not survived, then often the handbills, the flyers, the posters, the tickets can be the only trace that, that tells that story, that, that gives a physical manifestation to that story of that cultural uh, or social or political activity. So, we also have to think about what community archives do with their, do with their material. So, one of the differences that I will, I will argue for, for community archives and the mainstream heritage collection, particularly uh, archives, is the emphasis on use that, that community archives are, and the emphasis on use by their creators, by their curators rather than um, expecting others to come in and use those collections and making them available. Community archives are, are often about collecting materials so that the people who are collecting it can use it, can, can uh, make uh, activities around it, can uh, make histories from it, um, so that they are, there's much more permeable uh, borders between the, the, the curation and the, and the use in community archives. And not only uh, do a lot of community archives um, produce a lot of um, historical publications and exhibitions, but they also um, tend to engage with their, community, their, their communities and their collections to build community around their collections in very creative ways, um, so that they're actively involved in creative practice around, around their uh, archives and their collections in a way that is more unusual, particularly within the archive setting, where we're often seeking to allow others to kind of use our collections, but allow them to use them in, in, their, in their own ways rather than using them ourselves. So just as a few examples uh, here, so almost really at a kind of sort of a, a random uh, selection, um, we have on the um, your, your left, um, the Living History of Milton Keynes, which is a really long-established community archive 
that is now both physical and a digital archive. Uh, you know, uh, documenting the, the, the history of a, of a, of a new town uh, not, not far from, from London. What's, what's interesting about them is that some of the trappings are, are fairly conventional in terms of the use of oral history, the digitization of photographs, the digitization of, of video oral histories and sharing them. But they also have it built in right from the, from the beginning um, a, uh, a focus on, on creative uh, practice of emerging out of use of the archives and use of the oral histories but also of documentary, uh, community documentary filmmaking. It's absolutely embedded in, in everything that they do. Um, in the middle, we have a, an organization called Kisetna, um, which is uh, drawn from uh, uh, the Syrian diaspora, um, mostly in, in, in the UK, but also elsewhere, uh, whose work is in the, um, in the area of, sorry, I've just lost it. Their work is to try and preserve the cultural and oral heritage of the communities affected by uh, conflict and displacement, with a focus on stories uh, and capturing and capturing those, those stories. And they've run a lot of kind of storytelling uh, sessions um, to, uh, to to capture those stories and then to share them. Uh, and one of the ways that they share the, these stories is by running these nights of music and, and storytelling, which both share the content of the archive, but also capture more stories and more, and more culture um, in, into the archive and, and kind of sort of in, an, in a generative fashion. Um, and the top uh, right is the uh, um, Everyday Muslim uh, project, which um, is seeking um, and the award, it's an award-winning community archive and heritage project that seeks to document Muslim heritage in the UK, including in the archiving and uncovering of hidden heritage going back to the 19th century, but also, really significantly and really importantly, taking that history and heritage out into the community, um, into the Muslim community, but also into the, the non-Muslim British society by organising heritage trails and walks that demonstrate that, that heritage and the length of, length of that heritage. So again, this idea of taking the archive out into the open uh, and finding ways to, to potentially engage with it. Um, briefly, Magic Torch at the bottom of the right is uh, they use graphic novels uh, and comics to take um, the stories from their community archive collections and to, uh, to popularize them, make them, make them freely available via the web, uh, particularly work with uh, youth to create these, uh, uh, these, these um, graphic novels, but also to, to share and work around kind of local histories and community histories, often quite challenging community histories um, about uh, discrimination and uh, um, domestic abuse um, to, to kind of work through kind of, sort of issues around those things. And finally, uh, we have in the, in the middle a quote from the Mayday Rooms, a social movement archive in, in London, where the archive itself becomes an environment, a space that is, is productive and generative, a place where activism uh, can, be, can be planned. So in their words, they talk about um, the future being produced by engaging with those archives much more than the past being con contemplated. So the, the space and the collections act as a, as a, a spur to, to, to thinking about uh, action and, and endeavor. Oops, 
I might have missed one. This is one of my own things. Yeah, so I, I missed this slide, which is, I think, is really important. I mean, there's a lot of, lot of words on, on this slide, but I think this is really important. Why, why do these communities do this? Why, why are they um, motivated uh, in, in, in terms of actually quite a lot of personal sacrifice, often about the time, the resource of, of living environments when they have physical collections that overwhelm their home? So w what motivates people to, to do this, to do this in a kind of sort of voluntary way? So generally the, the, the principle that they're working is to collect, preserve and use these materials to tell the history of the community by the community. And I've underlined that, that notion of the kind of the use as being particularly important, as, as, as I've kind of described in the, in the slides actually by now. But they're motivated to do these by, by a number of reasons. And these reasons, I, I guess, are multiple. You can, you, can, you can be doing several of these things at, at once, but almost all of them are motivated in some extent by the, by the first two. So that there is a sense of rescue or salvage. There's a, a sense that, that, that our community history is not being documented and it is in danger of disappearing. This is a common motif that you find in, in almost every community archive. That for, for some reason that material, uh, if we don't look after it, if we don't ca capture it and collect it, it, it will disappear. And there's some justification to that. And I could give you examples. Linked to that is often this notion of representation. So wishing to tell histories that are otherwise untold, that the collections haven't been collected, uh, haven't been part of mainstream heritage organisations, and those histories haven't been told. And this may, may be just uh, a sense of, of a geographical distance from, from the centres of where things are. Um, are particularly important, but it, it is also uh, often a case of where uh, histories are marginalised are, are by minoritised uh, communities who wish to challenge the narratives that are told about them, or the narratives indeed that aren't told about. Place, I think, is an absolutely uh, crucial part of many community archives, a sense of place, of celebrating place, of uh, understanding the challenges of, of place and its history many times, but the connection to place, the connections of individuals and communities to place and how this can uh, act as a, as a way to build um, effective bonds bond of solidarity around um, an understanding of place and belonging. In terms of some of these others, I think we're, you know, we're looking at kind of sort of uh, areas in which the materials can be used to promote understanding, uh, they can be used to document uh, and, and, and preserve evidence of, of documentation of different, different histories, and then to use those to learn from useful past. But there is also, and this is why some of the, they, some, sometimes they get funded, um, there is also a, a sense in which uh, the activity itself may be, may be productive of uh, learning and producing new skills. So, that particularly in, in the early period, early 2000s, when a lot of digitization, community digitization projects were being funded in the UK. It was seen as that those were a potentially a social good for the community uh, in terms of its uh, well-being and engagement with heritage, but also skills in terms of digitization, of uh, computer skills, of oral history skills would be useful. 
So there's a range of, of motivations, which I think ties into the kind of form that community archives take, uh, the collections that they take, and, and what they do with them. I'm going to just brief, because I've already taught too long, um, I'm going I'm to skip the, the history of them, but suffice to say that there's been a kind of huge interest and recognition within, uh, within, within kind of archive heritage professions and, in, and indeed universities in community archives in, say, the last 20 years, since the early 2000s. But community archives and the activity of community archives in, in the UK and in many other places is far older than that. It happened, but it was largely ignored, or it, in, in, in many ways it was, it was distrusted or, and thought was illegitimate. You know, so collections are important, they should be in, in our heritage body. So th this is not a new phenomenon, it's just people have become interested in it in the heritage area uh, more recently. Where I want to do want to just reflect for a couple of minutes is on questions of, 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 of the threat and the sustainability of this material. So, it's, it's, uh, I've painted, I think, quite a, 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 almost a not, not a rosy picture, but a kind of sort of a picture of a um, of a you know an exciting area where people are doing uh, interesting uh, stuff with with attractions that might not other, otherwise be kept with stories and histories that might otherwise be, be heard. And I think all of that is true to the lesser and greater extent in individual cases. But they are also difficult to sustain. They, they, they do uh, present uh, a range of challenges to themselves in terms of the resources uh, that they have to sustain this kind of activity, particularly with physical spaces. Um, how long can this activity uh, be sustained uh, if, you're, if you're having to rent space or you're using your own um, home? But also in terms of kind of personnel and, digi and digital sustainability, digital uh, skills and resources. Community archives are affected um, by diff different life cycles and different tran difficult transitions. They are often um, the... the they're, they're often associated with, with two or three people, uh, often, uh, often one person indeed, who's built uh, a collection around and built some activity around them. Um, but when that, when that person or, or, or group, uh, particularly generationally, begin to pass, or begin to, to not be able to commit the, the time and the activity to it, or that they find that the, the kind of you know the generations and communities have moved on from their understanding of, of, of that community, and those collections are no longer um, have the same interest for the younger generations or new communities that, that are in the area. So those transition space spaces are are often a big threat to community archives. How do they survive? What can they what can they put in place to uh, to survive those transitions, to, to bring other people into the activity. Challenges around digital sustainability, I think, are, are huge ones, not just in terms of, of the kind of um, the, the content that people are, are, are putting up in within in their own spaces, but also the prevalence of uh, community material, um, including unintentional archives in places like Facebook, YouTube, and the... the, the damages and uh, potential loss that occurs there. So, we do understand that there are 
kind of there are issues here for thinking about how uh, community archives might be sustained, um, and that they are seen as, in, in some cases, as being critically endangered. So the, the Digital Preservation Coalition in the UK has has designated uh, digital content from communities as being critically endangered. So it would suggest that we need to do something about it. So just in the last minute or so, I just want to kind of sort of reflect on one kind of way in which uh, we are addressing or, or seeking to, to, to support um, communities in, in that way, which is through um, developments of networks. And there are networks in different places in, in, in the world. So there are, there's a, a very strong network in, in, in Poland and uh, at the ICA Congress yesterday we were hearing about the formation of networks in, in Latin America to support community archives. In the, in the UK, we have this Community Archives and Heritage Group, and I'm not going to go through, through the history of it, but it, it's evolved from being a, a body that was brought together of, of interested people to a, to a membership body, um, so it has Community Archives as its members, um, to now being a part of the Archive Professional Association within, within the UK, but bringing Community Archives into, into, that, into that space. Um, and so it, it's still a community archive body, but it offers as a, uh, as a space for negotiation and, and discussion and partnership, not only just with other community archives, but also with uh, heritage professionals and archivists and funders. And just briefly in terms of the kind of things that it seeks to do, it seeks to provide kind of, sort of mentorship, partnership, uh, spaces for people to meet, but it also seeks to provide resources uh, appropriate to community archives to help them with addressing issues around uh, their cataloging, digital preservation, uh, data protection, these kinds of issues, copyright, that are really crucial to their, their being able to be sustained over time, but are often the information is, is, is it's either very diffused or it's very difficult for community archives to, to engage with. And we do quite a lot in, in, in that kind of work about how holding conferences, bringing community archives together, also doing it, doing, doing it digitally. So that, I think it's a kind of space in which there is a, there is a potential for resource. The final just an example of, of where things could possibly be, be helpful to a community archive is big, big research projects that, uh, um, that are beginning to try and address how community collections are, um, so trying to address the fact that communication shouldn't be left behind. So these are, these are very big projects, um, a, a project uh, towards a national collection is to try and look at how computational uh, approaches may may work to bring collections together and collection data catalogs together and make them more searchable and usable in, in a way into different ways. But a number of these projects, including the one I work on, which is the Sloan Lab, which is the one to the left, but also importantly the uh, the our, our heritage our story, seek to to also to ensure that this technology and the research and development draws in uh, community collections and doesn't leave them behind. Uh, uh, that if, if we have anything, this kind of weird idea of a national collection, it doesn't exclude community materials. Um, so that's where I want to finish. I hope that wasn't too long. Um, so community archives, digging where they stand, that's, 
that's the hope that I'm, I'm leaving you with. Uh, good evening, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. Um, really honored to be here. Is the sound is good? Yeah. Um, I will apologize for how jet lagged I am. I just got from the U.S. a few days ago, and I have not quite gotten back to normal. So today, um, uh, I'd like to, take, like to thank Brad for inviting us, as well as Amina and Nahid for doing all the arrangements. Um, and I would like to thank Dr. Andrew Flynn. I've never formally studied with Andrew, but I consider myself a student of his just because of how much I've learned from him over the years. Um, there's a tradition within the field of archives to tend to give our, explain who we are before we talk so that you understand that whatever I'm saying comes through the lens of who I am, and it's not a, it's not a, universal, a universal way of seeing the world. Um, so I am African-American uh, from Chicago, uh, Illinois. Uh, maybe you're lucky enough to be from Chicago, too, I don't know. Um, uh, and I'm a convert to Islam now more than 20 years ago. So and Brad has already given my academic credentials, so if you remember those, those also are theirs as well. So that's kind of the lens by which I start my talk. So, um, I moved to Qatar, uh, Doha, in 2016 for the second time in my life. I had lived there maybe 13 years earlier studying Arabic. Um, and I was now, in 2016, there to teach at University uh, College London, had a campus there teaching information science, library science. I immediately tried to understand the country's documentary heritage. And my archives is my field. I did a lot of work studying archival heritage in North Africa, specifically Morocco. So I immediately, as a man in 2016, I'm trying to understand okay, what's, what's going on here in terms of documentary heritage. How is, how is this culture being documented? What are the, where are the records at? Um, these are the kind of questions I'm asking myself internally as I'm, as I'm also teaching there. Um, I was introduced to the strong cultural heritage sector that was and continues to fuel the many museums in the country. So I don't know if anyone's been to Doha, you know, that's the old National Museum and the, the new National Museum kind of is enveloped into the old one. Um, I began to look at the role of heritage experts in the country, specifically at those. So I'm getting, I'll get to the, her, the community archives thing. I think I'm getting there. So it's a story because it took me a while to get there. So you, uh, bear with me. So I began to look at the role of heritage experts, specifically those who were running the museums and reading about their role and challenges to their authority. Um, so this idea of who was a, a true heritage expert was out there and what happens, for instance, you know, people say, what happens if you let emotion become too, part, too much a part of uh, heritage uh, expertise, uh, which for community archivists, emotion is not a problem at all. We like emotion, you know, we like affect is something that is considered a, a value in appraising archival records for community archives. Anyway. As an archival scholar, I start to think about where are the records of cultural heritage and who's producing them and who's taking care of them and how are they being valued. I soon came to, uh, I came to realize that there was a, ch a challenging environment for archival records due to a variety of factors. So the climate is often mentioned, right, that a lot of what we consider traditional archival records in a country can't survive the, the Gulf weather, right? This beautiful humidity that I, I, I absolutely missed when I, I love walking. Um, and the, uh, the, this is not necessarily the best environment for records. Um, and that also different cultural factors led to there being just a, a, what we would we consider a relative paucity compared to other parts of the world, right? Um, so 
um, what were what did I find the companies were doing uh, to kind of fill this um, void or absence of uh, maybe uh, analog physical records? There was I saw that there was I mean a million. I mean I started to every time I'd hear about an oral history project, I would write it down. I have this just running list of oral history projects, which I eventually um, by being done by people from all over the country, different backgrounds, obviously students, government bodies. Um, a lot of different people doing oral histories, and I actually ended up writing an article about that for the uh, Journal of uh, Archival Science. Along the way, I also had a, held a conference on community archives uh, in Doha, and Andrew actually came and attended that for us. And it was, but what I was doing and holding that conference, it was for me a learning experience. I invited people. I invited people from Kuwait, Palestine, Palestine, Egypt, Jordan, um, people working locally in Qatar to see what they, what were they doing. So they might not have been calling themselves community archivists or calling themselves community archives, but I reached out to them because I had learned something about what, something that they were, some activity that they were doing that I thought was um, related to community archives. And so some people actually had to kind of talk them into coming because they said, well, I don't think they're going to. <laughs> I said, no, just come and tell us about what you're doing. Uh, and so that was a really great experience. And it was during that conference that I learned about local Gulf, the Gulf, local Gulf tradition of house museums. Um, and some of you all here are probably very familiar with this, but it was something that was someone uh, talked about at the conference. Um, and so this is when you have these private, or sometimes people say folk. Uh, I don't know, it depends on the folk, or if you're trying to, sometimes folk can be problematic if you're trying to make it seem less than, less than something else. Um, but these private museums, which are private in the sense that they are not funded or run by state cultural uh, bureaucracies, and they are managed by private individuals, people who often consider themselves to be collectors, um, and these are generally only accessible to family and invited guests. So this is an actual house museum in Qatar uh, that the Qatar National Museum actually has put up on their um, Google art page or something like that. So private museums are part of this uh, regional culture production that operates outside the sphere of, say, the Western expat uh, experience in the Gulf. So you might not necessarily run into them uh, if, if you're not kind of plugged into certain communities. Um, but they are part of this richness of the regional and uh, cultural production, which I think are also, um, and the reason I'm mentioning this is because I think, as Andrew was mentioning, people have been doing this kind of documenting their communities forever. Um, and so I was also interested in seeing, you know, how, how is this being done? What are the local contexts? How are people in this region doing that? And so I consider like these local house museums as to be part of this uh, the same vein of community uh, documentation and archiving activity. Um, so uh, the National Museum of Qatar is also aware of the richness that are held in private collections. So they have this, um, not annual, but uh, pretty, um, they've had four iterations, or three iterations, the fourth one about to start soon, of this Nandawan, uh, you know, uh, where they bring, have people who have private collections and have these materials that are interesting, um, and they have them showcased in the museum. I was told that the first time they did this, it was kind of a way to see if they can, and, and maybe it happens still, it's a way to also try to see if there's anything they might like, might like to try to, you know, take it to, you know, entice the person to sell to the museum itself, but this is also a nice way to get people to do these things. Um, 
But the more time I was spending, uh, and I'm sorry, I know that this has been done in the UAE as well at the museum, but the more time I was spending in Qatar, I came to understand that there was kind of a disconnect between this formal cultural heritage sector and the cultural documentation concerns um, of the local Qatari population. So from hearing, um, you know, the people that I knew in Qatar, uh, um, uh, even taking, going to museums with local Qatari people and seeing their response to exhibits, realizing that there was some kind of a, a little bit of disconnect between um, what was happening between those two sectors. And uh, Trinidad Rico has uh, her work on cultural heritage in Qatar helped me to understand that some of the, the dynamic ways in which there might be a failure for some things to be officially recognized as heritage that local people might see as heritage, but might not kind of make it on the radar of the heritage experts who work in the museums. Um, so, um, so she asked this question of, you know, quote, beyond focusing on, on that which is saved and that which is lost in heritage preservation narratives, how do we study absences in the discursive and material practices of heritage preservation? So for me, unquote, so for me, those absences uh, in the formal, formal heritage sector, uh, I knew they weren't, say, voids, right? There's maybe silence. There's a definition of silence and absence. I knew that there's something happening. It's just not happening here. <laughs> and so I wanted to dig more to figure out where that, where that, where that was, what was happening and where that was at. At the same time, I'm, at this point, I'm doing a lot of research. I'm looking at the way Qatari uh, cultural heritage experts are talking about the situation. And Maryam and Mullah also goes by Maryam and Mohammedi and Mohammedi um, has written a lot about the place of uh, cultural heritage in Qatar. And often, uh, just you know, people just mention it in a, in a sentence or two, but there was often this, this mention of, you know, well, the museums are there because we don't have an archive, national archives. The museums are there because of a lack of archives, of official archives. And so this was kind of sticking out to me. Uh, the the, the Qataris themselves were making this, this, this relationship between this uh, museums and archives as somehow one filling in for the other. Um, and that led me to this really interesting uh, exhibit that opened up in 2019 when they opened up the National Museum of Qatar. It was called Making Doha. And I spent a lot of time visiting Making Doha um, because it was an interesting retrospective that used archival materials, including photographs, architectural plans, films, and oral histories, to try to document uh, uh, Doha's uh, emergence as a city from a time when it was just very nascent oil revenues. Um, and obviously, it, was, it goes into the future. So 2030, they actually are thinking about all the, the things that, you know, how Doha will evolve um, to meet this future needs. Um, so many of the photographs and films used in the exhibition were actually sourced from foreign archives and were used to create this narrative of progress. Fatima Sahlawi, who was who is a Qatari architect who um, co-curated the Making Doha exhibit, you know, said um, in several interviews that there was very little to work with in terms of documentary records um, of the city's built past. And she attributed this dearth of records to the fact that, quote, there was no national archives in Qatar. Um, that being the case, making the Making Doha team uh, contacted private individuals. So they, they realized that they had to go just directly to certain people who, who they knew might have these materials in their home, um, who might have these records, including people who, had, uh, who were expats, who had people who had lived in Doha and maybe in the 50s and the 60s. So they, they understood that they would have to go to people to find the records they were looking for. 
In addition, uh, they work to understand the quote unquote the genealogies of different government ministries in order to figure out who should hold which documents about state-led building during that era. Um, they had this one director from uh, Qatar Museum that all the research for the exhibition had to happen solely within Qatar. It couldn't happen outside of Qatar. So as Sahlawi said that that experience of trying to find records, trying to find archival material to document Doha from 1950 onward, really led her to understand, quote, the depth of what could be the National Archives of Qatar, right? And so I'm telling you all this to say, this is, this, I'm, I'm taking this all and I'm trying to understand what's going on with archives in, in Qatar. Um, and this is where I, uh, once again, I, this, uh, I run into these people who are not running to them, I actually work with them. <laughs> um, but they were doing this major, uh, one of the first surveys of Qataris to try to understand what were their expectations for a national museum. And so I, I was actually get to see some of their, their survey uh, instruments which wasn't publicly made public, but some of very interesting questions they were asking Qataris before the museum opened to kind of say, what would you expect in a national museum in terms of cultural representation, identity representation? Um, one of the most powerful questions that really struck me was, what is something you think should be in the national museum, but you know won't be there? I mean, that's, I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's a nice, I do, I, sometimes I teach research and I say, like, that's a nice question. <laughs> So um, that really led me to see them, but also confirmed for me after seeing some of their presentations and seeing some of the responses they got and seeing some of the publications that came out of that because they actually published it, um, articles based on some of the, the responses they got from those surveys. I thought, okay, so I'm, I'm not wrong. There is this kind of a disconnect between formal sector and what Qataris, how they feel. Okay, now I'm finally getting to community archive material. So what happens? What happens is that I was blessed that at some point I had this very archives-focused um, and passionate about archives, Qatari student named Asma al-Kawari, who wanted me, who was also concerned about like, the absence of archives and the absence of uh, kind of what we call archival thinking. So archival thinking is a term first kind of coined by a woman named Sassoon, an Australian archivist. But archival thinking is how we think, how people think about their materials. It's how you think about your materials determines what you do with them, right? So. Uh, speaking with Asma, uh, she encouraged me to kind of see what countries were actually doing, as opposed to my focus had been so much on what are the cultural heritage professionals doing, right? What are these people in the museums and the libraries doing? Now, what are excuse me, now what are countries actually doing? What are they doing to preserve their, um, to to document their uh, cultural heritage? And so she kind of called it kind of a we're thinking of proto archiving or uh, you know, um, not not quite community archiving but close. And it was through her that I got this idea of thinking about community archiving, not, not community archives, not as maybe fully formed as Andrew showed us and I think so he can show you this is a very old community archive, but of an, act, of an activity that is happening that people are doing, they might not, not be calling it that, probably most likely they're not calling it that, um, but this activity that we as people from the field of archives look at them and say, okay, they're doing community archiving. So this is, you know, once again, when communities are self-documenting, there's a conscious intervention in the representation, interpretation, and communication of their culture. Um, and they are producing these uh, collections to, uh, about themselves, about their own experiences, and really for their own consumption, for their own not being necessarily personal, but for their own immediate community. Right? Um, so this led me to um, 
so this is where I, I realized that the archivist or the archival activity I had been looking for had been with the populace all along, right? With, with these, you know, with the quote unquote what we call lay people and not with necessarily the cultural heritage experts that I had been looking at or looking for uh, since I had gotten there, right? So where is this at? So Andrew calls uh, these, uh, he calls them, what do you say, unintentional archives when people are putting things on, on I like this, is unintentional. I think these are actually very intentional, although coming from the field of archives, we consider them to be problematic. Um, we can talk about that um, just because ideally an archive within our field is something that can guarantee long-term preservation. And these using um, what we would call proprietary social media sites uh, that you cannot, you cannot actually consider that you're actually guaranteeing the long-term preservation of something for a community. Um, and there has to be some kind of a, we, and we can talk about that, I don't want to get off the, into a technical track. But when I, so when I started to look at these sites that I had been following anyway with a different eye, so this is a very, very popular site, Turaf Lawal, the, the man who started the site, he has, you know, Instagram, he has Twitter, or whatever Twitter's called now. Um, and he also, though, you know, very, respected within the community. He's invited to the Kata National Library to give a talk. He talks about how he reaches out to a lot of people, the older people in the community, um, for, for, for documents and information. So this is, so he sees himself, if you read the literature on community archives that comes from the UK or from the US, and you read about what he's doing and, and the place he sees his, his sites, his playing, it's, it's a perfect match. And it also, um, and the idea he feels that, you know, that this is this, this um, responsibility um, that certain people coming to him that he would call it for reference, you know, asking for more information about things. So this is one example of, of that I found. Another one, uh, great Mal Awad, once again, we can see, once again, Qataris trying to document what they have about it. And some of these are some, will be sometimes tribally based, so you have a certain person documenting their tribe. But I think those are very interesting uh, when people are really just trying to, uh, so very specific of what they're trying to document. Uh, this is one analog film that QA was, um, this one, you know, analog film, they actually go out, they're actually shooting, they're going to shoot film. So what they are, they're actually doing a very active, we would say, documentation. This is a, this is a group of, of um, not only Qataris, but people who are, you know, people who are long-term residents, right? So people who feel themselves to be culturally Qatari, even though they may not uh, be, uh, you know, have citizenship. Um, who, but who understand, and this is also these two with Adam, um, I'm sorry, with Andrew was saying, they understand the sense of, um, the loss of what is happening of the older structures of the city, especially pre-World Cup when a lot of things were being moved around, right? So this idea that we need to go out and document old Doha before it's gone, right? And so um, they go out with this analog film, right? Which analog film is itself, right? Supposed to be the, something from the past, right? We're not supposed to be using analog film, but they go out purposely and they sometimes go out in groups and they go to old neighborhoods and they, they try to document everything they can, right? They're trying to, um, so this is uh, one of uh, Suk Ali in, uh, in, in Doha. Um, and I love that one of their responses is just timeless. <laughs> uh, these are great. Um, so this is another one. So they have these trips. They'll say, like, let's go to an old school, an old movie theater, things that people remember. So things that people have lived there for a long time, a certain neighborhood that has a meaning for them, right? So this is go out and capture all of the, these, these local masajid, these, uh, these local mosques, right? And so really going out to try to document them. Um, uh, and so this is what I found uh, that people were doing to really try to produce their own records, their own archival collections of, of their experiences in, in Qatar. And obviously this has happened in the UAE as well, right? This is a, an example. I'm sure I could find more if I had, had tried. So um, 
like I said, I'm not necessarily, I'm saying that I'm, I've located this social, this community archiving activity, and I think it's great, and I hope that it expands into something more. I'm not trying to advocate for using social media platforms for documenting communities because of some of the, the issues that have until long-term uh, um, uh, preservation, sustainability, and things like that. Um, but I think that we can at least acknowledge that there is something happening. There are people who are uh, consciously, so I don't know if they are, um, uh, what was the word you used, Andrew, I'm sorry, you said uh, uh, unintentional. I think they're intentional. I think they're intentionally using these platforms. I think they're very intentional, and I think that maybe there could be some guidance from maybe the formal archival sector uh, as to what are the better, might be better ways to actually um, move from uh, we see this as a step towards maybe more formal community archives like we've seen in other places, if that's something that they would like to do, if that's something the community would actually be interested in. Um, so I just leave the, leave you here with thinking about some of the, you know, what are the possible horizons for what what does community, so one of the frustrations I have with um, working, you know, being so, um, you know, multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, and also being conscious of different cultural uh, landscapes is, you know, well, how does community archiving look when it flourishes in other parts of the world? How does community archiving, what does it look like in Africa? What does it look like in the Gulf, right? Um, and so I think, for me, I'm excited at the possibilities of, right, of maybe moving past these, these um, proprietary social media platforms to seeing what are the possibilities for uh, community archiving in this region. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.